Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. I've been away for a couple weeks. I was on vacation and then sick, so it's good to be back with you guys this morning. So we're diving back in to a series that I hear everyone is so excited about on membership that I thought we would just continue this series for the rest of the year. Oh, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so with that, we are continuing and we're finishing today in our series on membership, which, which I recognize leaves a lot of questions. So as Ronnie said two weeks ago, come talk to us. If you have questions about this, if you're here today and you're visiting and you're not a Christian, this is still relevant to you because what we're talking about first is what it looks like to be a shepherd, why God has appointed that position to uh, people inside of the local church, and, and what it looks like for us as, as pastors to shepherd people. And so you can hear what the shepherds, pastors, elders, we're using those words synonymously, what our task and goal is to do. And so it's a great time for you to jump in, but you're also going to hear this. The same message that we preach week in and week out that we stand on, which is the gospel. And so it's a great time for you if you're non-Christian or new Christian to still hear this. So with that, church, don't freak out. We're rolling out membership. It's going to be okay. I'm going to say that. We're not changing. I'm not bringing a knife up here and slicing it and asking who's joining the wolf pack or anything like that. We're, we're not getting weird. We're not doing anything like that. So just calm down, okay? Breathe. It's going to be okay. We're going to unpack this, we're going to talk to this, we're going to work to this, but one thing that we've done and we've continued to do is to try to lead with transparency with an authentic spirit, but part of that is also, I should say this, it needs to be reciprocated. So if there's something you struggle with, come talk to us, please. As, as Ronnie has said, and I've said, we're not going to bite your head off. We, we, we invite dialogue, we invite conversation. In fact, we are very strong in our convictions and where we land on our doctrinal positions, and so we want to have those conversations, and so we invite it. So I love you guys. It's good to be here. It's good to preach the word to you guys. So with that, turn to 1 Peter. The easiest way, if you're new and unfamiliar with the Bible, just go to the very back. Start at the back. You'll be at Revelation. If you went to your concordance, you went too far. Go left from there. You'll get Jude. You'll get 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then you'll get 1st and 2nd Peter. So if you start from the back, it's a bit easier. DC made mention of something uh, that I want to bring to you guys' attention in a little bit more detail so we can pray for that before we get started this morning. So one is... Levi. And so he mentioned Levi. Levi is a seven-year-old who has been back in the kids' ministry. His parents are Heidi and Nick Morse. Um, awesome, awesome people. And uh, Levi has lymphoma, and he's seven, and he's battling with that, and he's up in Portland right now. And so uh, they, they removed um, from one of his lymph nodes a, a, a grapefruit-sized tumor. So now he's undergoing chemotherapy. And so what we would ask is this. Pray for Levi, and pray for Nick and Heidi, and pray for their family. They have a couple other kids. T is their oldest, and Maddie is their youngest. So you guys can be in prayer for Nick and for Heidi. Yeah, so with that, I, and I know this. I know there's a lot of sick people right now. So let's continue to lift that up. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you for a church family. I thank you for a family that holds the same thing in common, that we all share in Christ the same spiritual blessings, that we're forgiven, we're made new, we're clean, we're purified. God, that we're not left to fix and clean ourselves up, to make ourselves right and worthy to enter, enter into your presence, but instead, you've done all the work, Jesus, to make that possible for us. 
And we thank you for that. Remind us of that this morning. Remind us of our identity. It's a new year and there's new change. And we're living in just an interesting season and time with so much going on. But we thank you that you're a God who doesn't change and you've given us an identity that doesn't change. And your love for your children never changes. And we praise you for that. Father, we pray for Levi. God, we pray ultimately that you would heal him. But we know this, that God, that everything that comes to us in this life passes through your hands first that you're a God who's in control. You're not a, a God who's second-guessing. You're not a God that's surprised. You're a God who's in control, and you're a God who's good. But we do ask, honestly, as your children, that you would heal him. But we also ask for this time that you would strengthen the faith of Heidi and Nick, that you would give them peace and assurance for this time. I pray as a community, we would love them, support them, and encourage them. Father, I pray that they would feel that. I pray for those in our church family that are sick, that are battling illnesses, God, that you would strengthen their immune system, God, that you would protect us that we'd also make wise and responsible decisions and choices. God, lead us by your spirit. We need you to speak to us in this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point this morning is going to be what's mine is yours, okay? What's mine is yours. So if, if you walk away remembering something, I want you to walk away remembering that. What's mine is yours. We're going to be looking at what it is to be a covered covenant person, okay? So we are covered covenant people, but what I mostly want you to remember is what's mine is yours, all right? A few years ago, there's a group of us guys that were headed out to man camp, okay? Man camp is kind of what it sounds like. It is a camp for a bunch of men. It's over at the Washington Family Ranch in Eastern Oregon. And so we are headed out there. We're going to be headed there again uh, this April. And so we actually have those dates. Uh, I think we've sent those dates out. We'll make sure you get those dates. But I would highly encourage you to go. Highly encourage you. If you're a man, come to man camp. It's a blast. It's a great time for us to connect with one another, connect in the word, be reminded of the gospel, and share time together. But on the way to man camp, I was driving one of the vehicles to man camp, and it had a suburban full of men. And there are conversation strikes up in the very back of the suburban. Basically, it boiled down to this, that as a man, it'd be really hard to call yourself a man if you wore Lululemons and worked out at Orange Theory. If one of those offends you, don't shoot the messenger. I will tell you where you can aim your gun in just a minute because he is in this room, but don't shoot me. I was listening to this conversation that went on. It, must, it, it seemed like a long time. It was probably like five minutes about how I just couldn't fathom how a male would possibly even go to the store but would buy a pair of Lululemon anything and then actually represent that publicly, okay? Here's the problem. I was wearing Lululemon joggers, okay? Driving. <laughs> And we were stopping in Sisters, which is only about an hour away, okay? So I was rolling through my options. Do I stay in the car, not eat? Do I fake an accident, you know, that something happened and I need a new pair of pants? Do I just cover those ones up? What do I do? Because Chad, Mr. Stylish in the back, made it very clear men don't wear Lululemons. And this man had a pair on. And now today, Chad owns Lululemon pants. I just want to say that. <laughs> but in that, in that moment, I was like, oh. You feel exposed. And there's moments in life where you can just feel exposed. And, and I think most of us can relate to that to some degree. And then when we feel exposed, we instantly look for something to cover us up. I'm exposed. I feel naked. I don't like where I'm at. And so we look through things in life, whether it be a person, a relationship, something we can attach ourselves to, wrap around us, cover us, to make us feel safe and secure, almost like a blanket. When we open up the text this morning, we're going to be hearing from the Apostle Peter. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, and what we're going to look at today is the covering that ultimately Christ and Christ alone provides and brings. And what we're going to look at is Christ says what's mine is yours. And what we're going to look at 
is that it's the shepherd's job and responsibility to preach and remind the people of that week in and week out, day in and day out. So with that, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2 is where we're jumping in. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The first word that we come to today is shepherd. So why, why shepherd language? Why does Peter use shepherd language? Our Old Testament is filled with shepherd language. In fact, all the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were all shepherds. But you can go back before that. Abel was a shepherd. We come from a long line of shepherds. Moses was then a shepherd. David was then a shepherd. And when you get to Psalm 23, you actually read this. David is calling Yahweh shepherd. The God, Yahweh, the Lord, my God, is my shepherd. So Israel referred to God as their shepherd. I mean, there are hundreds of times when the word shepherd is used in the Old Testament. It is clear that Israel was expecting and, and expected God and looked to God as their chief shepherd. So when Jesus comes on the scene and he sits down with thousands of people and he starts feeding them, what he's doing is fulfilling what Psalm 23 said. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. What Jesus was doing is starting to already show, I'm leading people here in green pastures on the hillside. I, I'm, I'm sitting them down and I'm feeding them. And then when Jesus says, like Ian just read from John 10.10, 10, I am the shepherd. I'm the chief shepherd. You know what Jesus is saying? That's not something they would have been like, oh, cool. He was calling himself God. If you want evidence of Christ calling himself God in the New Testament, that's about as clear as it gets. Israel understood only one person was called shepherd, God, Yahweh. And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm, I'm him. I'm the chief shepherd. And what did shepherds do? Shepherds cared for their flock. Shepherds tended their flock. Sheep aren't bright. So if that, that offends us, we're called sheep. Sheep are prone to wander. But there's also something really cool about sheep with shepherds is they really do know their shepherd's voice. You can actually go on YouTube and, and, and Google this and you can watch videos. They actually have people that will call out to a whole field of sheep. And they'll let two or three people do this. And the shepherd will come up and he'll start calling the sheep. And all of a sudden, all the sheep lift up their heads and they come running. So when Jesus says, the sheep will know my voice and they will respond only to my voice, he means that. The shepherd or the sheep of Jesus, the chief shepherd, start to recognize his voice. And it doesn't sound like you're dirty, you're disgusting, you're gross, or anything like that. His voice sounds like his word. That's where we hear the voice of the shepherd. So this shepherd language was normal language. It was normal language to call Yahweh this, to call God this, and now Jesus takes on this. But what he also does is he gives shepherds. He gives under shepherds. And so pastors are technically under shepherds. They are meant to shepherd God's flock. That's why he gives them. We see promises of this in Jeremiah. God says that I'm going to send good shepherds because there's been bad shepherds. Not all shepherds are good shepherds. There are bad shepherds. Some of you have had bad experiences with bad shepherds. So have I. And so I understand that. What is a shepherd's job? It says shepherd the flock of God that is among you. But what should a shepherd do? Dr. Thomas Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, affirms Martin Luther by saying this. Martin Luther says this. Thomas Schreiner affirms it. A shepherd's primary job is to preach and teach the gospel. The shepherd's primary job is to preach and teach the gospel. 
Sinclair Ferguson, Scottish scholar, man I love, says this, the pastor shepherd's primary job is to remind the flock of their identity in Jesus Christ. If he said, what is the pastor shepherd's job description day in and day out? It's one thing, primarily, to remind you of your identity that is in Jesus Christ. Because in this world, you are going to cover yourself with something. You are going to find something to cover yourself, to wrap yourself in, in a sense, like a blanket. And what we have in Christ is a covering that will last. Where am I getting this covering language from? There's, there's a word in the Hebrew, and the word is yalah, which means exile. So if you go back to the very, so we're going to be unpacking some scripture today. If you go back to the very beginning of our Bibles, what you see is that God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. He placed them, in a sense, in paradise. But what they did is they rebelled against God. And then what happened as a result of their rebellion is they were exiled, okay? The word exile is most commonly transferred in the English, uncovered. So Adam and Eve were exiled. They were uncovered. They were out of God's presence, outside of the garden. They felt exposed. They felt naked. They felt uncovered. That's what it means to be exiled. You're out of the presence of God. You feel exposed. You feel naked. You feel vulnerable. That's how they felt. And so obviously we see what they do. They try to make coverings for themselves. And then God provides a covering for themselves. And throughout the history of our Bibles, what you see and what you see with us today is we're constantly trying to find something to cover ourselves with. Like what? Many things. Everyone in this room has an identity. Everyone in this room has an identity. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. But everyone is also trying to find something else to seek and find an identity and to cover themselves, to wrap themselves as a blanket. Just as a side note, it's no wonder why even like weighted blankets are one of the top things right now to give people security. Like we're looking for something to cover us with. What are these things? Let's read a few. Identities that people seek and find that are outside of Christ. First, relationships. If you find covering safety and security in a relationship, you, the other person, or both will be crushed. You won't give them constructive criticism because their anger or frustration will devastate you. Or the person will go into self-loathing and not be able to provide the affirmation you need to get from them. Their self-despair will leave you feeling empty because you find your security in their well-being and being on good terms with them. This is an approval blanket, but pull a person's approval away and, you are, and, and this person feels uncovered and exposed, feeling naked and trying to do anything they can to get the relationship back to a healthy status. It's going to be really hard if you find your identity in another relationship, to be very honest, because you're going to be defined by that relationship. And here's the really difficult thing to say recognizing my audience that's in the room and the people that are listening online. Your spouse staying by your side is never a guarantee. Relationships in your life are never a guarantee. To find your identity in a relationship is not a safe thing. I know that's not popular to say, but A, people die. B, my mentor, one of the most brilliant men, godly men I know, who's a pastor of, uh, of mine in Reno, his name's Tony Slavin. His wife left him. He fought and fought and fought and fought and did everything to win his wife back, but she would not come back. So to find an identity attached to a relationship is not your ultimate because it can be removed. What about career and finances? If you find your identity in that, if your safety and security comes from your career, your soul will always be restless. You will be driven by your work performance 
And if your boss gives you constructive criticism, you might crumble. Even worse, no job is as secure as we think, so lose your job and you might be driven to despair. This is the people that wake up in the morning and look at the stock market. This is the people that wake up in the morning and they're looking at their accounts. They are fixated on their security blanket of their own personal finances. Many people had this security until the Great Depression also hit at one point in time. It's not a safe place to find our identity. What about looks? <laughs> Does this scale give you safety or security? Does it give you worth? Does the color of your hair, do the wrinkles on your face give you worth? What about losing your hair? What about gaining weight? How much money will you have to spend to slow down the inevitable? One person says, find your looks, find your identity in looks, and you will die a thousand deaths before you eventually die. Here's one. What about church membership? What if you find your identity in church membership? It's not a good place to find your identity. It's not an ultimate identity. In fact, you might move, like Brad Hodgen, who was once a part of GCC, and he moved to another place, and therefore he's no longer part of this church family. Does that mean he's lost his identity? No. There's a lot of young people in our world today, especially I see this in a lot of 20-year-olds, that are seeking some sort of place to belong, and they're thinking that church membership is going to satisfy something in them, and it won't. Because you could become disciplined. You can move away. Something could happen. It's not an ultimate place to find your security, your covering, what you need to be wrapped in. These are just a few examples of what we do to try to clothe ourselves, to cover ourselves, to wrap ourselves with something that makes us feel secure. And when these things start to come off, by God's grace, he will unravel these things. He will uncover these things. You see everything ugly start to come out inside people. Why? Because we're messing with someone's identity, their security, their safety, and we're stripping it away, and we don't like that. But we recognize one thing for sure by doing all of this. We need a covering. We need to be covered. This is language that runs true in our Bibles. In fact, we'll start here with Ruth. Ruth 3.9. I believe there's a slide up behind me. Look at what Ruth says to Boaz. First, he says, who are you? I am your servant, Ruth. She said, spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth tells Boaz, spread your garment over me. What is she doing here? She's saying, make a covenant with me. It's not popular for women to propose, but this is essentially what she's doing. She's saying, wed yourself to me, be in a covenant relationship to me, cover me. Because a man's garment and the edge of his garments back in this culture in the ancient East actually represented their identity. And so she's saying, identify yourself with me. Make me your bride. Enter a covenant with me. That's what she's asking. That's what she's appealing to Boaz to do. Do this for me. Cover me. <clears throat> How do, else do we see this? We see this in 1 Samuel 24, 5. You remember all the times that David spends running from King Saul? He's running and he's running and he's running. Finally, King Saul goes in to relieve himself to take a number two. And so he sneaks out and he cuts off a corner of, of the robe. Look at how David responds after he does this. And afterwards, David Hart struck him because he had cut off the corner of Saul's robe. What, what did he do? Like, you read that, you're like, that's bizarre. What, why is his heart heavy? Because he cut off and messed with someone's identity, and he knew it. Because those garments, the outer garment, was representative of someone's identity for a male in this culture. And Ruth knew that. That's why she said that. Look at what God promises in Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. Oh, by the way, 
Go in your Bible sometime and, and mark this up. I love this. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. You got to highlight this, okay? I'll read it right here. Look at the language here. This is God's promise. Like Israel has rebelled, they've gone astray, but here, here's what God's saying. Remember my covenant, because I do. And here's what I'm promising to do one day. Ezekiel 16, 8 through 14. He says, <clears throat> when I passed by you again and saw, behold, you were at the age of love. God is using marriage language here, right? Look here. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made a vow to you and entered into a relationship with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth from among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Another covering, but not just a covering, like just an array of beauty. God says, I'm going to do, but it starts with this. I'm going to spread the corner of my garment over you. In fact, our New Testaments end with this promise. This is amazing. I, I love this stuff. I don't know if you guys do, but you can just revel with my excitement with me, okay? So Malachi 4.2 says this. This is a promise, okay? But unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. That's how the, that's how the Old Testament ends, right? Then Jesus comes on the scene. Jesus comes on the scene, and what does he do? The first thing he does in his ministry is he gets baptized, right? And God first says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. So God doesn't love him based upon how well he does his ministry. God loves him based upon the fact that he's a son. So it's not, go and do ministry well, and then I'll love you. God says, I love you, and I'm proud of you. Why did Jesus get baptized? Why? I mean, he, he's, he's sinless. He's perfect, right? Why, why did he get baptized? I would love to unpack this another time, but not only did he get baptized, he got baptized in the Jordan. Remember, it was Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament that crossed the Israelites out of, or I'm sorry, brought them into the promised land, brought them into the land of Canaan. So Yeshua, Joshua in the Old Testament brought them into the promised land. Lo, Moses didn't, who represent the law. Moses did not. Joshua did. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, he goes out to the Jordan River to get baptized because only he is the one who's going to bring you into ultimate paradise. The true Yeshua is here. The true Joshua is here. But what he's doing is this, is Jesus is sinless, but what he's saying is, in my death, the way that I'm going to die, I'm going to identify as you are. Though I'm sinless, though I'm righteous, though I'm holy, though I'm perfect, what I'm going to do is take on a sinner's death. So what he was doing was self-identifying with us, even at the beginning of his ministry, showing how it was going to end. He's saying, I'm sinless, but I'm going to become sinful so that you can become sinless. That's why he was baptized. So he can make what's his ours, because that's what he says. What's mine is yours. Your sinfulness will be transferred to me, and my sinlessness will be imputed to you. He was showing that. But what he's also going to show is he actually is the redeemer, the greater Boaz, who's going to come and spread his garments. How do we see this? Look, look at this passage in Luke. Luke 8. 43 through 48. And there was a woman who had discharge of blood for 12 years. That made you unclean, impure, and separated from community. 12 years. 
You talk about a heavy weight. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she, so she, now she has no money to her name. She could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. And it, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, look at that. She came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Remember, the edge of the garments was something that identified a man. She touches Jesus, and, and in a sense, what she's doing is coming under his wing. She's coming under his covenant. The very discharge that has made her clean, if she touched a Pharisee or someone else, she would be harshly rebuked at best. What should happen at this moment when she touches Jesus is that Jesus should become unclean and should be marked as unclean, but instead, he makes her clean. She comes under his covering. She comes under his care, and he identifies himself with her. And instead of Jesus becoming sinful, and unclean, he makes her clean and pure and righteous. He transfers his goodness, his purity, his cleanness to her. What he's doing is he's self-identifying himself with her. He's bringing her under his care, under his cover, and he's covering her with his healing power. This is just a picture of what Jesus is ultimately doing at the end of his life, providing the ultimate covering, providing what we ultimately need. That's what a picture of the cross is, is Jesus coming and, and, and covering us, He's making a covenant with us. Just remember, God placed Adam and Eve in, in the garden. You can read that later. Genesis 2.15, God places Adam and Eve in the garden. God also makes a covenant with you. By his grace, he places you inside of Christ. The language the New Testament uses is not alongside of Christ, beside Christ, arm in arm with Christ, next to Christ. It is in Christ. That language is used 70 times. In Christ. You are you are connected inside of Christ. God places you there. You did not put yourself there. You do not maintain that position. You cannot wiggle yourself out. Everest would move before that would move. It's immutable because God is, and he's placed you there, which means it's unchangeable. That's your identity. I was watching a movie the other day, and someone said, you're defined by your past. Hear me all the way out. This, is, this would not be a good time to get up and leave, okay? You are defined by your past. I will affirm that. But here's the problem. When I say your past, I'm referring to his past because his past became your past. So let me explain it because I know that's confusing. We oftentimes think about what we did five minutes ago, five days ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, and we say that defines me. And what I'm saying is you're not looking far enough back because the thing that defines your life is Jesus's perfect life that he lived in your place. That is your past. That is your life. When he transfers it to you, he doesn't say, here's some of my covering. He says, I'm covering you with full purity and perfection of righteousness that belongs to me. When we talk about your past defines you, what I mean is your past is actually Christ's life that he lived. That belongs to you. It is legally in God's eyes, your past. His life becomes your life. What's his becomes yours. What's yours became his. All of your sin, all of your unrighteousness, all the things that you are afraid of and hope that people don't ever see or know, that was all transferred to Jesus. What was yours became his. What was his became yours. That's a done deal. 
He took it to the cross. In fact, our Bible uses such strong language that it's as if you were baptized, or it's, it's as if you were crucified on the cross. You were there. Look at this. We, we don't have verses for this. I, I, I don't think. Maybe we do. But Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. Were you there? I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All right, so it's as if you were crucified there with him, but also raised with him. Look at Colossians 3.1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Our problem is sometimes what we do is we go back inside of the tomb that Jesus has already conquered and we put on all the sin and all the stuff that he's already paid for and left there. We try to recover ourselves with all the stuff, let's call it crap, with all the crap that Jesus died for, atoned for, and paid for, and we try to go back in the tomb and make it our identity, and, and what Christ's words are to us is, I left it there. I paid for it, it's buried, it's done, it's gone. The man outside of the tomb is what defines us, not the sin that was left in there. Jesus' words and declaration are, is. What's mine is yours. My righteousness, my holiness, my sonship, my royalty. Let's go back and read Ezekiel in light of this, okay? Ezekiel, if you'll put it back up there for me, Nathan. 16. I want you to notice this is for those in Christ. Notice what your role is in this. Notice what you're doing, what you're bringing to the table, okay? Because that's the good news of the gospel. You're powerless to save yourself. You're, you're powerless to be deemed royalty. God does it all. Look at the language. When I passed by you and saw you, behold, you were uh, at the age of, for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I identify myself with you. I do this. This is God's language. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. And you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. We're the active recipients of the work that God does by his grace and then makes all ours in Christ. When I felt the need inside of the vehicle to cover myself, in those moments, what I'm reminded by is I'm left uncovered only to be reminded in that moment I have a greater covering. There's things in your life that will make you feel that way. But God's word to us in Christ is this. What's mine is yours. This is who you truly are. It's a shepherd's job, first and foremost, to preach and teach that message. And it's a shepherd's job, first and foremost, to remind you of your identity in Christ day in and day out. Because years change and seasons change and the pandemic changes and the regulations change and everything changes. But this doesn't change. God and your identity that is in Christ. What does this mean for us when it comes to membership? You can count on this at GCC. We're not going to change that message. Tamper with that or anything else. If I or another person, as Paul says, should come to you and, and declare something other than this gospel, woe to them. That's what we're going to preach and teach week in and week out. Gospel communities from the pulpit, when, when you meet with us, it is our job to deliver that. That's how we will best shepherd people is telling them who they are. And then here it comes. 
encouraging and exhorting them to live consistently to their new identity in Christ. You were placed with the Holy Spirit, not a mini God. God himself comes and abides in you and he empowers you now to live consistent with your new grace-given identity. What's mine is yours. But then when Jesus says the way that Christians now live is to also say to one another, what's mine is yours. In, in other words, I have this identity, so do you. We go around reminding one another of our identity of who we are in Christ. And we go and say, hey, what's mine is yours. I know you're, you're struggling to believe this because your emotions in your life right now are telling you you're guilty or shameful or something. But remember, what's mine is yours. But also, how did the New Testament church live this out? Local church. They didn't see their finances as their own. They didn't see their time as their own. They sold everything to have everything in common. You know why a lot of times membership's not popular nowadays? Because it presses in on your autonomy. I like to have things my way on my time, and you're not going to tie me down with anything. Though the king himself wasn't just tied down to a cross, he was staked there. You want to talk about giving up freedom. So let me do this, and let me shepherd as best as I can quickly through some of the maybe objections that some of you guys might have in light of membership, okay? If you're, again, you're here, you're not a Christian. That's what we're going to preach and teach, week in and week out, because we believe this. You're finding your identity in something that the world is telling you to find your identity, and it's going to exhaust you, and it's not going to satisfy you. So this is what we believe. What does it mean for a church member? It means that we live by what's mine is yours. And so the very first thing is I would say is this, is I want to shepherd the heart, and, and this might be a reality for you, and so we're going to need to be honest with one another, okay? There's a greater level of intimacy as you look at church membership because you're calling people to just, like, greater intimacy, like greater involvement. And that might scare you if you're willing to be honest with yourself because that might come with greater rejection. So sometimes greater intimacy, greater involvement means greater rejection. And through life, maybe you've experienced something like that and that's been painful. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you're just like, oh, I don't know. It, it, I, I, was, I was a part of a church, this and that. Let me share part of my story with you. When I moved to Eugene, Oregon, I moved here with a ton of bitterness toward the church. I was not in a place to plant a church, that's for sure. Do you know where a lot of my bitterness stemmed from? Because I saw the church functioning in such a way that was operating to manage sheep and not shepherd them. And I wasn't sure that I wanted anything to do with the network that we were part of or anything like that. In fact, I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to this man camp thing by myself. I didn't have anyone else to go with anyways. <laughs> But I was like, I'm going by myself. And if I don't meet actual men that are shepherds that want to shepherd sheep, and I told her, I was like, I'm done. Because if that doesn't bother you, this will. My, my bonus at one point in time in ministry, the megachurch, was attached to how many members we got into membership. I hate that. I think it's gross. So here's what I'm asking. Maybe you've had a bad experience. I've had... I've had all different experiences. I, I, I'm a big-time hunter, okay? I've had bad experiences with hunters in the woods. I'm not throwing it away because of those bad experiences. In fact, I want to reform it. I've had bad experiences at martial arts gym. I've done that my entire life. In fact, I had one of my Sifu, like, grab him by my hair and throw me on the ground and stuff like that. I haven't thrown martial arts out. Instead, I've sought and tried to reform it. And I would say the same thing. Give us a chance here. Be gracious with us and be a part of the very start of what we're trying to roll out and help us reform it. That's one way to look at it. 
because maybe you are like me and has had a bad experience, but maybe this, maybe your fears are standing in the way from something that could actually be a good experience with greater intimacy, but maybe it's going to call you to do something. Maybe it's going to call you to die. Jesus said, those who want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. What was that a card to say? To follow Jesus, come and die. Membership's not this, the, the, the arrival place. Membership is in a sense a card you carry around you that says, I'm, I've, I've showed up to die to myself. I have family members and to live for them. But also, look at the text here with me. Shepherd the flock of God that is amongst you, that is among you. So the call in this text is for us to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. In fact, in Acts, it says something similar to that too when Paul's talking to the Ephesian elders. So we're supposed to shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Who is that? If you look around, we got like 50% new people in this room. Jesus tells us to leave the 99 and go after the one. Who is the one? Who's going after the 50% that have left the church? Who even knows their names? Because I'm not okay with that. This is a way that we can know our people and shepherd our people and know who we're supposed to shepherd. Here's the thing. I don't want to be anyone's cheerleader. And if you're looking for a church where the pastor and pastors and shepherds are going to be your cheerleader, then please don't come here. Because I want to be held to a greater level of accountability, but I want to hold other people there. I want to be held to what it looks like to live into my identity in Christ and walk out a life of holiness. And I want to hold other men and women to that as well. And I think this is a way that we can do that and do that well. What about doctrine? Here's what we're asking. To sign our core tenets of the faith, our core doctrine. That is what we're asking to sign. That God is Trinitarian. That the Bible is inerrant and infallible that there's only one way to salvation. By the way, Christianity is very exclusive. It's through Jesus Christ. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That's what we're asking you. The question of baptism has arose and arose. Here's what the elders talked about even this week, is if you can defend your position theologically why you shouldn't get baptized, and please come talk to us about that. But if your only reason is that you don't want to get baptized because you're stubborn, I have a hard time taking that serious, just to be honest. Because how are you ever going to take Jesus' other commands seriously of die to yourself and that sort of stuff? Plus, maybe I've never said this. I want to baptize you. If you have not been baptized, I, as your pastor, would love to baptize you. If you were baptized and had a pre-conversion baptism and you realize you never converted, I would love to baptize you. I want to baptize you because it's a celebration of this. You are now identified not with what just went into the water, but the person that came out of it. As a new person and a new creation who is in Christ. And I want to be a part of that. And your family, your church family wants to be a part of that. Let us be a part of that. I was baptized as a Catholic as a baby. That's not the same thing. And if you don't believe me, please come up and talk to me. I would love to engage that conversation with you. It's not the same. So I would love the opportunity to do that. People will say this rejection. Well, I'm already doing all the things a member does. Great, then sign up. Well, well, I'm already doing it. Awesome, yeah, just sign. Cool. Nothing will change for you. Here's what I would ask. Be transparent. It's been stated. Ronnie said this this week at our elder meeting. People love our church because of gospel centrality. It's our aim and goal to highlight Christ, not ourselves. But what's also loved is at our church is transparency. Be transparent with us. Come talk to us. If you're struggling, if you have questions, we want to talk to you. We want to be able to shepherd you through this, answer your questions, maybe answer some of the things that's going on in your life or personal experiences you've had with that, but give us the opportunity to do that. And honestly, right now I'm stalling because I'm trying to think if there's other things that I forgot to say. <laughs> That might be helpful for you guys to know and understand. But I don't know. Just come up and talk to us. I'll have Brad and Ronnie come up here afterwards. If you guys have questions, just ask us, okay? Be patient with us, guys. Give us grace. We're going to roll this out.
And hey, here's the, here's the cool thing. If it doesn't work, we don't have to do it. You know? So just saying that. So it's like, let's try it. Let's see it works. Let's try and do it well, okay? But yesterday, I want to go back to the shepherd's job. Yesterday at the Reeves house, my oldest daughter decided to front kick, the Sparta kick, uh, her younger sister. And just right in the gut, right? That's not how we train our kids to solve the problems. So she did that. Our youngest is in a lot of tears. I, I quickly talk with Joey. Um, and I'm sounding calm all now, so you guys think I'm an awesome parent. I wasn't calm in the situation. So, uh, but I'm like, get to your room, and we're going to talk about this in a second. But before you go, I wanted to feel the gravity of what she did. I was like, look at your sister right now. Like, this is like, this is, this is hurtful, you know? And, and then I'm going to come in and talk. When I went in the room to Joey, she was hiding, and it crushed me. She was hiding with her face down in the closet. And I grabbed her, and I said, Joey, who are you? And she said, I'm your daughter. And I said, nothing in your life will ever change that. And the, true, or the reality that is true for us right now is you're loved in this moment at this time because you're a son or a daughter of the living God and nothing in your life can change that. Let's pray. Father, I don't know if there are things that I missed that I should have said that I didn't say, but God, I trust in your goodness in this moment and this time and pray that through this season, what would define our church is the person and work of Jesus and that we would remember what you have done, what you've given, and that that now belongs to us. Even as we sing now, Jesus, let us sing with the spirit of joy because we are not who we once were. We're not defined by our past five minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, 15 years ago. We are defined by your past that you've made belong to us. It's ours. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.